welcome everyone to the 50th episode of the New Gen Mindset podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, what's going on? What's up, man? It's, uh, it's a good day. I'm excited, despite the weather we have here. Uh, so uh, with the, how's, uh, how's your day been? Uh, you know, it's been pretty good. Lots of stuff happening in the market. Big rally today. We're going to talk about this with our guest here. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah. And uh, I think it's good to kind of just build off the momentum that you and I have kind of been talking about these last few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the markets, the rotation with sectors to look at. Um, because clearly the, the, the big shiny object or the big elephant in the room being Bitcoin is on its way down. And that's obviously panicking the ones that are not uh, aware of sort of the macro sphere or, mm-hmm. you know, the entire, the way the system really works. So um, we've got a guest here mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about this with all and the it's, unique opportunities. Exactly. And it's cool because we get a, usually typically the type of guests we bring on, especially from a macro perspective, tend to be, you know, uh, boomers. So I think this is the first time we're going to have a more of a macro perspective from as a guest, that's more of a millennial. So it's going to give, you know, brings, it brings a different perspective of the markets from a different angle, from a different age group, which is something more critical for us, especially as a millennial. So, uh, yeah, I'll let you go with that. Without further ado, this gentleman is currently a uh, portfolio manager at Crestcat Capital, um, and he's been with the firm for just over six years. Um, he's built Crestcat's macro model that identifies the current stage of the U.S. economic cycle through a combination of 16 factors. His research, his research has been featured in various financial publications, such as the Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Financial Post, The Globe and Mail, Reuters Real Vision, and he's also a native of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and is fluent in Portuguese, Spanish, and English. Uh, before joining Crescat, this gentleman was also a Division One tennis player at uh, Liberty University, and um, he's got quite a big following on Instagram, uh, and that's really where we found this gentleman over here. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Otavio Costa. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So Tavi, just to start off, usually with our guests, the first thing we like to always do is because obviously macro is always about the story, the past, the present, and then how we take that, we put it into the future. So the first thing we always like to do is just get a kind of like a past take on the individual and the guest. So like, how did you get to this point in time? How did you get into finance, into macro? And what really made you obsessed? Because you know, just to say, just to give you a little uh, compliment, honestly, it's very rare that I see a millennial that's so refined with the way they perceive detail and they put out that much detail that I can take in and really process. So that's why we really wanted to bring you on because we really, really enjoy that, that, that finesse and that detail that you provide. Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for the compliment. Um, look, uh, I was born and raised in Brazil, so I always grew up with, uh, uh, I guess my parents uh, always had their own business. So uh, we he had some issues in the past with with money. Uh, things went south with their business, and uh, when I was fourteen, and so I was sort of grew up in the uh, environment of uh, where we all struggle uh, money wise. And uh, tennis was sort of my outlet to look for a place uh, such as the U.S. to build my career. So I was able to um, get recruited to play tennis in college, which. I wasn't the best tennis player, but I was, I was really uh, just trying to get an avenue to come to the U.S. Uh, for, you know, basically uh, free tuition. And so I did that. Um, I finished up college. I moved to a place in, uh, in Missouri, uh, finished up college there, actually, um, in a private school, and then uh, moved to Denver. Um, and that's really when my finance uh, career really started. I you know, I was really uh, introduced by Kevin Smith, which is the uh, still the, the CEO and, and founder of Crescat. Um, he always had some, you know, principles in terms of the value investing and ideas and uh, really trying to build uh, quant models to help him to pick uh, companies in, in a universe of over 2000 companies or so and have a built portfolio uh, built on, on those ideas. And what he realized back then were at least uh, what I interpret it as, as a way, it was that most of the macro themes we've had in the portfolio came from uh, this quant model, which was completely unbiased. Um, even the housing bubble, for instance, the, ho- the home builders uh, and banks in the US used to score very badly. Um, when I came over to, uh, to Crescat, I really 
uh, was you know trying to build a lot of the, the macro themes with a little bit more detail uh, to uh, to the idea rather than so much through the models. Um, and that kind of drove me into his principles and start building some of the macro models that we have currently evolving the process, uh, coming out a little bit from the value approach, uh, but looking at things more in the macro uh, with the macro perspective. Um, later on, that became uh, uh, more of the, the weight that we invest today. Uh, we have uh, very large macro themes uh, and implement those according to our models as well. And, uh, uh, and recently, given our views, we shifted our whole business to uh, have a partnership with a geologist uh, and really implement this uh, gold, silver, and commodities trade uh, in a way that uh, at least I'm not aware of other people uh, really pursuing the same strategy in this hedge fund world. So um, we can get into that later, but uh, that's that's really uh, kind of a short story of, of, of how I, uh, you know, uh, developed my, uh, uh, my way of getting into the business. And um, what we've noticed too is, um, you know, the, the Instagram page that you have, it's a very simple way of explaining the technicals and a lot of the charts that you guys are looking at. Um, I wanted to ask you real quickly, I know that uh, this has probably been one of the most unusual uh, 24 months in our lives, to be quite honest, especially with the way, you know, COVID pretty much wrecked the market. And then we saw probably the most historic gains uh, in, in a very long time. And there's a bit of a psych... I, Nick and I talked about this last time in one of our episodes There's a bit of a broken psychology with people assuming that a 76% year to date gain or a gain over the course of the year is actually normal. So I want to just ask you, what are you seeing right now from your perspective and where do you think this market is going? Uh, just from a terms of a macro standpoint, obviously not, not too much into the specifics. Well, I agree 100%. It certainly seems the case uh, that a lot of investors, especially young investors and or less experienced ones are not very used to the difficulty to build a very long term, uh, but also reliable and credible track record in this industry. Um, and having, you know, prep, you know, last year was very unusual, as you said. Um, and so a lot of asset classes actually went up significantly. Um, and make it made it look a lot easier than what it is. Um, in my opinion, where we are right now is, is I've, I've said this before, I think the Federal Reserve is, is truly trapped, uh, but it really has two routes to go. Uh, one of them is to continue to, um, uh, to, to really inflate this, this narrative of inflation where uh, they continue to really uh, prop up the equity markets with uh, liquidity uh, $80 billion of, uh, of treasury purchases along with $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. Um, and, and that keeps on going along with uh, the repo market situation, um, inter interest rates uh, near zero uh, at the same time as suppressing, especially long-term long rates uh, by owning about 30% of, uh, of the treasury market, especially on the, on the long end and uh, uh, especially notes and bonds. Um, and so that is one side is to continue to inflate. The other side of it would be um, raising rates and fighting an inflation problem um, somehow and uh, uh, tightening uh, in a significant way and creating a reckoning moment where there's really a, a, a situation where we face the reality of, uh, of a lot of assets that are completely out of touch uh, with fundamentals. Uh, and there's a long list of even asset classes that are in that camp from the equity market as a whole to corporate bond markets to sovereign bonds to even housing markets in some, some regions as well. Um, so I find that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit difficult to, uh, to predict, but it's always difficult to predict in which route they're gonna go for. And I, I think they're gonna go to the inflation route. And that's why I believe strongly that we have this three pillars of inflation sort of uh, functioning at, at full cylinders right now. Uh, we can get into that later, but, uh, uh, I think we're going to trigger uh, long-term inflationary problems um, given the policies that we're seeing. And when you look at the language, uh, you know, calling the Federal Reserve hawkish uh, is, you know, relative to history is, is sort of insane. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like I use this analogy, but it's almost perfect analogy for what's going on is, is they're thinking about uh, starting on a diet two years from now. Uh, that's their language to, uh, to start really tapering and so, or even raising rates really. Um, and so it's, uh, 
I find that a little bit uh, uh, difficult to, to, to not see inflation really running inside of the system, especially with investors hoarding tangible assets and uh, beginning to really drive um, commodities and other prices higher. Um, recently, much needed, we saw a correction in a lot of the commodities, especially cyclical ones, uh, copper, I guess, uh, would be one of the main ones along with lumber. But when you look at throughout history, especially in the last 10 years or so, prices are still really high um, and probably will be sustained to some of those levels. Um, and so even lumber prices down 50%, 50%, it's down from its peak. It, it doesn't even compare with two to three decades of history of those prices. And so um, I, think, I think we're going to see uh, continue to see investors uh, hoard those, those assets and uh, that will create inflation. And so um, there's, a, there's a lot more to this, but uh, that would be a, a simple way of answering uh, part of your question. If, if you were to assume that, let's say they continue to do what they're doing with the tapering and they avoid the route of raising interest rates, because I feel like... The way I see it is if they were to raise interest rates, they're basically accepting that they created, they sort of induced a market scenario that they created because obviously raising interest rates would create this, this kind of market chaos that they kind of created because in the first place, they reduced the interest rates. They allowed the debt load to expand the liquidity. If they take the route of tapering, would they, would you, do you think that there's possibility of a scenario where we kind of have what Japan had? where you had a market stagnation, uh, you had that bubble and equity collapse, uh, you had, the, then you have the, the social trends also, the, the youth don't wanna work as much, the youth have to live at home, um, you know, there's the, 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 pot, the older people have to continue to work and there's that, the, 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 and the market is not growing anymore because there's no more entrepreneurship, it's too expensive to even try to compete with the bigger companies. Do you see that as a possibility moving forward within North America, which would obviously be dangerous since you want growth in the economy? I'm trying to understand your question because uh, my understanding yeah. of Japan is that they never tapered, you know, I mean, oh, in terms of the, the size of the balance sheet, but. Uh, I meant it more in terms of the, the, the QE, the continuing of the QE, the continuing of, uh, of trying to get government intervention in the market and not allowing the market to just, yeah. it, to just heal and deal with the consequences that they induced. And then to move out of that scenario, where instead they continue, to, they continue to avoid the problem, which created this lag for a couple of decades. Yeah, and I, I would add to that to the, the point of the money velocity issue, which certainly is something that uh, tends to anchor this um, this inflation thesis. Um, and um, I think it's a possibility what you just said. It's certainly a possibility, some sort of uh, a scenario where growth isn't isn't here, and it's it's if it is, it's driven by uh, in a non-organic basis, uh, really uh, through a lot of uh, fiscal or monetary stimulus. Um, in my opinion, um, as an investor, you know, who knows what the path is going to be like, inflation or deflation. But um, I have my view on this as of today. It could change, um, but I think the most important part of it, it really is. Uh, look for the greatest investments that are able and capable of performing well in, in opposing economic circumstances, regardless of what it is. Um, and today I see a, a plethora of, uh, of macro and fundamental and, and technical uh, reasons uh, for, for investors to buy gold and, and why I believe we're in a secular bull market for precious metals. And uh, it's incredible what's going on with the with the economy here in the U.S. I mean, we grilled the real GDP since January of 2020 by about 114, 15 billion dollars. At the same time, the debt amount of the government debt actually grew about 43 times that amount. So, um, how much units or how many units of debt do we need to generate growth? I mean, this is becoming absurd. It really is, and so. Um, it is, in a way, cert certainly the issue with money velocity uh, is, is very deflationary, but does it matter? Um, look, if you look at Japan and, and gold prices in Japanese yen, uh, gold went up and significantly. And so, um, and so I, I think I like assets to have a sort of optionality to it. And I think gold fits that category. When you have a construction view about gold, then you can really uh, extrapolate that and look for other assets that may benefit from that. And you can start looking at silver, you can look at miners. Um, 
and go up on the risk curve as, as you as you desire. And so that's that's from my standpoint is is really what I feel excited about it. It's uh, I think that policymakers are playing a very dangerous game by monetizing the debt in a way. You can create the complexity issues of comparing the real monetization of that and that it's not per se what they're actually doing today, but it's very close to it. And, and basically the Federal Reserve and banks uh, funded close to 60% of the uh, four to five trillion dollars of, of debt increase that we saw back in 2020. And so uh, my point is, you know, how do you taper in these conditions uh, if there are no real buyers of treasuries outside of, of, the, of the Federal Reserve? Um, we may see the, the treasuries really rallying here and there when investors uh, may buy it every now and then. But uh, I almost have a feeling we might be entering also a secular bull market for treasuries. I don't have any investments on this thesis, by the way, I'm not implementing this at all. But uh, I just have a feeling that uh, it's it's uh, uh, we may be entering one of those where rates might continue to go higher, uh, more more sustainably going forward, uh, given the fact that the, the the Fed really is trapped and and it doesn't have a lot of choices going forward. But um, again, I think it's more clear or much clearer uh, path to uh, to have a view on gold and, and silver uh, than uh, than having a view on treasuries. But uh, your scenario is certainly, uh, uh, I would say, a concern. Before, it, no, go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say. I mean, it it it, it bring, you bring up a really good point. It's almost like you know nobody, even with last week's or the Fed's and the Fed had an announcement where they said they're going to start raising rates in 2023. You saw an overreaction in the market last week and then a nice little rebound this week. So that is almost difficult to kind of like figure out what that's going to look like. But um, when you do talk about gold and silver, um, I think, you know, Nick and I would probably agree to this. Um, this is probably the biggest, most undervalued opportunity right now in the marketplace right now. Um, and I love one, your most recent post here on Instagram, you, you hit the nail on the head. You say triple digit free cash flow growth, insanely cheap valuation, strong balance sheet and profitability is on the rise. What are we doing right now to get this message out to millennials or what is it that you're doing right now to kind of help position yourself, your clients and other people uh, that, you know, could benefit from something like this? That's a good point. It's so unfortunate that a lot of folks see the commodities market as such a uh, old school uh, or boomer market uh, when I view this as one of the best opportunities out there nowadays, at least. Um, it's, it's really, um, when you think about government spending, you have to think about as well uh, what exactly drives spending. You need a narrative. Uh, there are a few narratives nowadays that I think will stay with us for a long time. One of them certainly is inequality. The other one which, which forces investors, and I'll go back to just an, an analytical work I've done with the bottom 50% of the society, where uh, we're not only seeing the largest increase in that worth of those folks, but if you break down their assets, about 50% or 30% of what they own is in real estate. And so it is sort of a, uh, a national order to keep um, rates lower and allow uh, the population to afford housing. And so uh, when you look at the, the top 50% of the society, we don't see the same allocation towards real uh, or uh, real estate. We see a much larger allocation towards financial assets. Um, and so I think there is a, a need for suppression of rates um, that comes from uh, from the top, given uh, the inequality issues. The second part of the agenda certainly is um, this green agenda, uh, which is uh, related to commodities. It's, it's this whole uh, thesis behind, you know, let's go from the old economy to the new economy and create a lot of innovation, but they forget that commodities is the highway to go from the one side to the other. And so the highway has become a lot more expensive over the years. Uh, used to be really cheap. You know, if we've had a, almost a decade long of a bear market in commodity prices, and uh, things have changed now where um, at the same time, we've had a, a long period of, of, of underinvestments in the space, which a lot of people don't get that. You know, they're all talking about transitory, but there are a lot of permanent 
uh, problems that we've had for the last uh, really uh, decade or so that will likely continue to be the case in the next decade. You know, uh, how do you build a mind today? I mean, it's it's not easy. Um, you know, I, I'm in the trenches of of this, and I know it, it takes it takes a lot of effort and work uh, from an environmental standpoint to a political standpoint. Um, to even uh, a worker's standpoint, because there are no workers willing to work in mines. Um, and, uh, and so when you put it all together, certainly we have uh, a supply uh, issue that is a little, a little bit deeper uh, than, than the transitory story being told by Federal Reserve and other uh, market participants. Um, now, how do we share all this with, with other folks? Well, we live in a world that nobody cares about fundamentals. They only care about growth. Um, I try to lean on the growth side. I mean, it really is, um, you know, not only a profitable industry today, uh, it didn't used to be in the past, but given the skepticism and this uh, really hate for, the, uh, for, for how uh, most of the executives in this industry manage uh, their companies, especially with overspending and salaries that are not undeservedly really, um, and what we found was that they're actually cutting costs and capex. Uh, they're not investing as much as they used to, um, and so we're seeing margins improving across the board. And as you all know, fundamentals don't matter nowadays, and so people don't care about that. But there is also growth embedded into this, and a lot of those companies are, uh, yes, they're coming out from from very low base, but. Uh, very, very strong uh, free cash flow growth. Some of them triple digits. Uh, and some of them are, you know, 50 or uh, uh, $40, 30000000000 billion companies. And so um, I think it starts from the top. It starts from those companies doing very well uh, to then drive capital to the other parts of the industry. But you look across the whole industry, there's about, you know, let's just call it uh, 25 to 2,000 um, uh, 100 uh, stocks uh, in, in the Bloomberg database that, that are in precious metals mining. Um, the large, and I'm talking about, you know, a huge percentage of this is, is, is in companies that are wor worth less than 200 million market cap. And uh, a lot of those companies don't make it. They're just terrible assets. Uh, they're not going to make it. Um, you know, they don't have a, a project that is economically viable. Uh, and there's a lack of understanding of, of this whole space. You know, the, a lot of people have been driven by the space uh, to look for high, you know, uh, large deposits, you know, large gold and silver deposits because they're very uh, levered to gold and silver prices. But that's also uh, comes that also comes with a very low grade, and so it really depends on gold and silver prices. And uh, and so you you're really adding another layer of risk. Uh, so, anyways, I'm just giving you a sense of how. Uh, deep uh, the understanding of this industry really is, and there's really a lack of that. Um, I try to educate folks in general. Uh, I try to educate uh, friends and, and family, and uh, and use those social media accounts to share some of my ideas. Um, I find a lot of gold and silver companies uh, with uh, better growth and fundamental uh, metrics than tech companies, software companies, um, and the market as a whole. And when you have a market where equity markets yield less than inflation expectation, corporate bonds yield less inflation expectation, sovereign bonds yield negative in nominal terms across the globe, um, it really drives everyone to buy uh, anything that could potentially appreciate in price um, and not so much on yielding uh, types of uh, returns. And so um, that drives you to, to commodities. And uh, it's why I think silver is the most asymmetric opportunity because it's not about buying gold and getting rich buying gold. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not not about that at all. Gold is this giant uh, asset that moves so slowly and it's 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 very um, stable uh, in a way and uh, you know truly truly limited supply, um, tangible. It would be the most industrial asset it could be potentially be if if it was cheaper. Uh, but it's not, uh, and so, and it's it's not abundant either, and so um, there's a lot of reasons to be long that, and and if you're long uh, gold, you immediately think, what are the best ways I can implement this? And I think uh, silver, you know, still significantly below its its prior highs, mm. uh, is probably one of the best opportunities out there. 
I mean, that is interesting because, you know, I, I've been buying some silver uh, these last like couple months just because, you know, every time that it goes up, people are like, well, here we go again. Here comes the short squeeze. But like people don't actually understand what a short squeeze actually is. And it's very difficult to do that in a commodities market. But um, yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're entering a time where people just want to get rich quick and in, in this game, I mean, it just doesn't happen. So um, you, you I, can see it. You can see it from the government's actions. You can see it from the market's actions or retail institutions. It's more of a greed the psychology that we were talking about that's broken. Yeah. Everything is about price action. Everything is about short-term driven profit growth that you're saying rather than fundamentals because fundamentals oftentimes can take more of a macro thesis where it can take time, but people don't want that macro, that fundamental. People just want price action. So you get that broken psychology, which is driving things in a way that may not necessarily fundamentally produce a productive outcome for the market, for the economy, for certain businesses. So you get a lot of this chaos. So I wanted to ask you, Let's say we go down this route where inflation continues to run hot. But, but, but before we go that way, do you agree with the CPI that CPI is a reasonable metric first off? Because like, it seems like a very unreasonable and misleading metric of real inflation that they use too much. Yeah, look, virtually almost every price that is inputted into the CPI data uh, seems to be understated. Um, but... Um, starting with even used car prices that clearly um, are even higher than what's stated by the government. But, um, you know, what do I know? Um, I, I feel like commodities is, is one great way to be looking at that. I mean, it, clearly, um, not only oil prices, uh, gasoline prices, uh, almost virtually, again, everything is, is up significantly, if not double in the last one, let's just call it two years, you know, some some people are worried about the base effects and uh, and uh, that we could potentially have in those calculations. Let's let's look at two years uh, from from now and and see uh, where we are in terms of prices. But I think I think there are, you know I think it's 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 really uh, we're running the economy in such uh, the economy is running really hot right now and and I don't see anything preventing that from from occurring for the next uh, few months. You have to separate yourself from two strategies. I mean, there's one strategy really is being a macro trader. Um, it's not so much what I do, even though I share a lot of the views of uh, being a macro trader, you're much more um, open-minded to those short-term changes and things and really open-minded to the sentiment of things. Obviously, um, there has been uh, a, the case where uh, I would say inflation has become the, the prevalent narrative uh, in, in a lot of uh, uh, newspapers and, and media as a whole. And even when I meet with friends, um, I see now people talking about inflation, which I've never heard of this in the US in the last uh, uh, decade or so. And so in my opinion, um, you know, there is, a, there is a sense from a trader's uh, standpoint of really fade that action. Um, and it's sort of what we're seeing right now uh, and uh, we're seeing some of those commodities selling off. Uh, but the, the real thesis, the other, other side of it, it's being a macro investor and really building a business where it doesn't really matter if you have inflation is not going to run, um, you know, it, it's not going to be a, a straight line higher. I mean, I think it's going to be, um, you know, we're going to have a lot of ups and downs in the short term. Uh, we're having now a, a, a short term uh, downward move in inflation where, um, clearly, there's going to be some impact where inflation numbers uh, could not be as hot for the, uh, you know, for some months, given uh, what we're seeing in lumber prices and so forth. But um, still, as I said before, uh, there are real forces in the economy of that are truly inflationary uh, from a labor shortage standpoint too, um, and uh, not only the supply issues, uh, but. Uh, uh, some of the supply issues are going to come back to normal. Uh, but like I said, you know, not, not everything. I mean, it's, you know, we use spend of money on fiscal stimulus with a trillion dollars package uh, back in 2020. You're going to be much less effective today with that same $1 trillion package because everything is more expensive. And so um, there's that part as well. I mean, look, the government did this. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, clearly. Um, and, uh, who is going to pay for the party? It's going to be the taxpayer. At, at some point, rates, uh, tax rates are going to have to go significantly higher. 
to pay for this. Um, but I just don't see a way out of this for now. I, I still think um, they're starting, you no, know, some folks are starting to complain about this issue of, of basically free money to the population. But uh, states uh, are still giving a significant amount of money to, to folks in general. And I don't think that's going to change soon. Um, so um, I believe that it's going to continue to inflate this inflation, mm. uh, inflate inflation, <laughs> sorry. Um, but uh, uh, again, it's going to be some ups and downs. So macro traders are going to take advantage of this. They're going to call it, you know, uh, the commodities market uh, is at a peak or whatever. And I don't know what chart they're looking at, but when I look at a, a 30 plus years or 50 years of, uh, of commodity prices, it certainly does not look like a peak. It looks like a bottom, but, um, and it's insane how there is uh, such a, a divergence of, of views about, uh, about the same asset class. And, uh, but anyhow, uh, you know, I, I just think that if you're, if you think that we're entering a sort of a, a super cycle for commodities, which it will take time to develop, it's not going to be the, the last six months of performance on commodities, forget about it. It's going to be difficult to, to have another six months like that. You know, it's going to be, we're going to need some, uh, some retracements and some, uh, some corrections and some of them um, in order to, uh, to build up that momentum again. And um, I think commodities like silver are looking for a reason to, uh, to take off uh, whatever that reason is going to be. Uh, it's going to be difficult to figure out, but what you do as a macro investor, in my opinion, not a trader is to, is to, continue to to look for the best ways to really implement that uh, in my opinion really is looking for ground or properties that have gold and silver or copper or anything else in the ground that you think it's valuable because that really creates this leverage to the price um and so that's where my focus is i mean i'm you no know, i'm not here to uh uh buy or sell our securities because of my macro trader uh views about the economy i think that Long term, we're going to build a lot of problems and uh, it's time to own commodities. Yeah. And I think it also just comes down to, you know, supply and demand, right? Um, it's the same thing with energy now with oil wells. Like nobody, nobody's drilling oil wells anymore, right? It's the same thing with like copper. There's not a lot of copper out there right now. And it's so, been neglected for a while, long time. It, exactly. So anytime you see a correction in, in commodities like this, the one that we're seeing now, I mean, not just to me, and I think Nick would agree that just screams like a big buying opportunity, right? So um, I want to shift a little more on the energy side as well. I know that that's something that you talk about too on, on, on most of your pages. Um, oil has obviously been having the best, uh, the best year, actually. I think it's the best performing asset class after Bitcoin, before Bitcoin had that, you know, the, the whole correction there. But um, where is that going? You know, what do you see that investors should start paying attention to? Um, I know that Nick and I always talk about oil because I've been so bullish on oil as of, you know, January. Um, and it's been the best performing piece in my personal portfolio. But, you know, given the way, uh, unfortunately, politicians, they talk about, well, we got to get rid of fracking or, you know, we got to close down all the wells. Well, no, I don't think, you know, oil is going away anytime soon. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what, you, what, what, your, what your thoughts and, are. And, on and I'm, just to add to that, like, I'm sure that the whole super cycle commodity thesis only adds to the whole oil expansion on the demand side because, well, I mean, the, the machinery, the, the, the transportation, all that is dependent on oil. So if we, if we increase that, that supply side, well, at least we want to, what's well, going to come with an increased demand on oil just to get all those machines there moving and moving all the commodities around? Yeah. Um, Look, yeah, certainly the green agenda adds tremendously to that idea, especially the ESG mm. uh, investing uh, in a lot of the regulations created into into uh, this market. But uh, you have to know how to differentiate the way to implement this trade relative to uh, gold and silver and copper and so forth. Uh, clearly, um, there is a real move uh, uh, against oil and that is moving away from oil. And uh, I think if you are a oil investor, you have to be aware of that given it does add, it does add to your trade in a short term and medium term, but not to the long term. And so I don't mess with illiquid assets in this space. Um, I, I, am, I have no issues buying very, very illiquid 
companies in the gold and silver space, even even uh, private companies who take them public. We've done many of those uh, in the last uh, 12 months, uh, but um, it's not what we're trying to do with oil. Oil or game or play is, is, is much more liquid. Uh, we'd like to buy some of the well-known companies. Um, we think that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, poised to, uh, to move significantly higher. Um, I do think that they're, most of the move uh, was, uh, you know, we're probably, it's going to be difficult to continue to see a move like this. Uh, we're sort of entering the FOMO era, in my opinion, where I remember speaking with uh, a few investors that would ask me about uh, Bitcoin uh, when Bitcoin was, was, hasn't, uh, you know, was still at, at uh, about 50 to $60,000 um, price. And um, uh, I remember saying, uh, they asking me if I, if I wanted to invest in Bitcoin, I was, well, look, I, I think oil is, is a little bit more interesting. Well, now those guys are asking me what exactly I'm doing with oil. And I'm, um, I'm you know, I'm a little, uh, Concerned that the sentiment is 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 a little too uh, uh, too steep in that in that direction. So I'm um, like I said, I, I have a much short shorter term um, time frame to uh, to look at oil. Um, I think it's a trade that will do well for the next uh, uh, three years or so, um, or it could potentially do well in three years. Um, but um, uh, I could change my opinion on this, but. Uh, that's one of the the the, the, the I guess the, the macro themes that I wear more of a trader's hat than, than an investor's hat. Um, I we're not on the board of any of those companies. We have nothing uh, re real involvement in any of those businesses. But we just think that from a from a, a supply and demand perspective, it looks interesting. Um, and uh, it looked much more interesting six months ago, even when it went negative. I mean, would have thought that uh, when prices went negative. Uh, sentiment was still bearish. I remember uh, talking about oil with uh, with uh, a lot of people, and when oil went uh, negative, and then was back to I don't know twenty dollars, twenty five dollars a barrel, and uh, the sentiment was that was it was going to go negative again, um, and uh, it, it wasn't a re easy trade. Uh, trust me, I I didn't think it was an easy trade at all at the time, uh, even though it looked like it, but uh, that was the time to buy oil. Um, now, uh, you know, we're, uh, approaching the time when I do think oil is headed towards a hundred dollars a barrel, but, uh, you know, I, I think we're probably, uh, getting to a point where we could see a, a correction in oil prices here. Um, so we have slightly reduced our exposure recently. Uh, we've bought more copper names, uh, instead, uh, they're down, um, and, uh, and so that's really the play. It's not so much, um, uh, I guess it's not as similar as uh, the precious metals uh, thesis in terms of the, uh, the fundamentals and, and especially the CapEx side of, of energy, energy, the energy sector. Clearly, um, you know, CapEx has been in a declining trend for over a decade. It's nothing to do with, with the pandemic or um, perhaps it has to do with a slow uh move towards this green agenda. But uh, I just think that the uh, oil prices, given the technology of fracking and so forth, um, in a way has been pervasive and, and really uh, hurt uh, this, uh, uh, this industry and sector as a whole. And so um, right now, I, you know, I'm still bullish. I think, I think it's, uh, it could potentially go, go higher, but it's definitely not a no, I've been bigger in oil before. I've been uh, have I've had a bigger position in oil before, um, and so, yeah. So you're more you're more underweight oil now than you were, let's say, a couple of maybe years ago, right? I would say not not many years ago, but I would just say we, we didn't have. By the way, Mar uh, April uh, was the first time where we actually bought uh, oil in the last uh, a few years, I would say. And so that was the first time we bought oil. We always had a short position of oil. With, we were not short when oil went negative, by the way. We were long a uh, lot of the, the uh, EMPs, which did not go down when oil went negative. Uh, and which for me, that was such an important uh, you know, macro call right there. You know, that clearly uh, those EMPs, uh, EMP investors were not 
buying into this uh, negative price uh, narrative that was uh, you know, also very popular back then. And so I thought we we're going to get creamed on those positions, which is part of the game. It's like, well, oil prices are negative. You know, I would expect those things to be down 20, 30%. No, they're actually up. And I couldn't believe it. I think XOP was up, the ETF as well. Um, you know, it's all, it's all facts. You can, you know, anybody can check that. Um, and so, uh, in, in fact, the market was down. The overall equity market was down that, uh, on that day. And the reason was because it was in, in the news was because of oil, but EMPs are actually up. <laughs> and so, um, anyways, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just underweight relative to where I was, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, in elections or so, because I remember we did not come in big and when oil was negative, I mean, even though it seems like an easy trade, it was not, we started building our positions small. Um, and, uh, um, and then during elections time, I think we were much bigger in those positions. Uh, we're still building a position. And then, um, recently I would say maybe a week or so ago, uh, we started uh, uploading some of those and uh, we're probably, you know, uh, we have maybe uh, uh, two thirds of what we, we have, maybe, maybe a little less than that. Awesome. Uh, I want to, so I want to take a step back and I want to take more of like more of a macroeconomic perspective, you know, like step away from being an investor, step away from being a trader, portfolio manager, like look at it as if from someone living in North America, like looking outwards on a long-term scale of 10 years, 15 years, if these trends continue, the way the government keeps intervening, the way the expanding the welfare system, the, the social programs, uh, the, the, the constant printing, uh, the, uh, the government intervening in every aspect of the market, whenever there's a situation, what risks or macroeconomic risks do you see facing North America moving forward? If these trends don't get solved or don't turn around, well, honestly, I think it's almost impossible to see, to not see uh, a drastic change from uh, political leadership, um, especially the what's being told as as the story right now, which is um, that the government really helped uh, the economy to be where it is right now. I think this level of intervention in the next, I don't know when. But I think it comes with inflation. Once inflation really kicks in more sustainably, who knows if what we're seeing right now is sustainable or not. But I believe it's more sustainable than most. But uh, if, if it does end up being sustainable in the following years, in my opinion, we're going to see uh, a shift in politics where um, a lot of people will be blaming this level of inter intervention. And that's really what drives either, you know, uh, uh, currency to be packed to gold or packed to uh, some other monetary system. Uh, and it's where we started to see those, those really big shifts uh, in, in uh, especially in, the, in, in, uh, in monetary terms. Um, so I think it's going to be difficult to continue this last 30 years of, uh, of, of handholding by the government, you know, really bigger and bigger packages of stimulus for every recession we had um, progressively getting bigger all the way back to the 80s, end of the 80s uh, with uh, Greenspan um, and, and some others uh, really uh, driving uh, uh, this, uh, this monetary uh, stimulus that we've never seen uh, really before to the level that we're seeing now, reaching uh, what we saw back in 2020 all the way to now. Um, and so I think it's really unsustainable. I think we're going to see uh, this idea that we didn't see inflation back after the global financial crisis. Uh, it's going to be the case again today. I don't buy into that at all. Um, I think that this mix of fiscal and monetary, especially through debt monetization, where the Fed is really funding fiscal stimulus to the level that we uh, haven't seen really in the last, even during the OA crisis uh, will, uh, you know, really uh, create inflationary problems. Uh, it's it's really the wealth transfer from the government to the people that we're seeing creating an uh, increase of net worth of individuals uh, that, in my opinion, will drive 
inflationary force is higher. And something I learned coming from Brazil is, is that in emerging markets, we have a lot of social programs where the government really gives a lot of money for, uh, for the population. In fact, in the north, uh, some of the north parts of Brazil, or actually a lot of other parts, I shouldn't just say the north part, but uh, um, I do know stories in the north part of Brazil, for instance, of uh, social programs where, um, you know, if you have uh, one kid, uh, you receive a certain amount of stimulus from the government. And so does that sound familiar? That, that's exactly what they're doing here. What did that cause? It caused um, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of uh, very poor and uneducated uh, folks to begin to have uh, kids uh, because they would get more stimulus. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, that's what drives um, uh, those uh, those types of policies. And uh, uh, you know, a lot of people are not thinking about really, you know, uh, building a, a family or anything like that. And some of those are in very um, uncertain uh, uh, positions and where, you know, that's one of their only options that they have. And so um, that's, a, you know, that's a, a possibility here in the U.S. as well. I know, um, I know a lot of people uh, have been uh, enjoying this, uh, uh, this stimulus uh, for uh, depending on how many kids you have. And it's, it's interesting because all those uh, programs in emerging markets are now being uh, taken here in the U.S. And uh, uh, for a lot of folks, this is new, but uh, those policies really drive inflation. It's why, uh, you know, we have a lot of inflationary problems in, in places like Brazil. Um, you know, it's, you know, people that grew up in those, uh, those setups, they know exactly uh, what hoarding tangible assets looks like and hoarding dollars, you know, is, is an important part of, of those places. Why? Because the dollar has always been, uh, uh, you know, so, uh, this more solid uh, monetary system relative to others. Relative to others is an important word uh, here. But, uh, um, and so I don't know if that's going to be the case going forward. Uh, I think we're in the race to the bottom with a lot of fiat currencies. Um, and uh, and it, for me, it's really time to buy, uh, you know, anything that is an alternative to that. Mm. Uh, it still looks cheap. Um, but uh, do I think it's Bitcoin? Um, now, some people do. I, I'm not so much in that camp. I always thought that Bitcoin was a call option in inflation uh, more than anything. But uh, um, I guess... You know, you can say that the call options in the money or back in 2019 when we wrote about it. But uh, now that it's collapsing like this, it's, it's a little concerning for the overall market, certainly. I mean, it's how many trillions or billions of dollars have been lost recently. I mean, uh, you look across the board, there's so many assets that have lost value uh, with this uh, drawdown in, in the crypto space. So uh, anyhow, I'm getting into another topic here, but... Uh, yeah, it's a lot good. of thoughts. No, it, it's okay. It, it, there's a, there, there definitely yeah. is a lot of stuff happening right now. I mean, even just globally, like inflation is just flying through the roof, especially mm -hmm. in those, you know, the emerging markets and sort of like, you know, especially in Latin America with, with all the stuff that's been happening there. But um, I got two more questions for you because I know that, uh, you know, Ty, you, you've got you to hop off here. But uh, my, first, my first one is, is the Fed lying to people? Huh. Um, I don't think they have a choice, really. Um, you know, I kind of get it what they're doing. I mean, what would you do? You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a tough position to be in. Uh, they cannot announce that what they're doing is to suppress rates and allow the government to borrow money mm -hmm. at cheaper levels because it's clearly what the mandate really is. Um, when there's nothing, you know, any person with, with the brain looking at the macro data would say you shouldn't be buying $80 billion of treasuries and other $40 billion of uh, mortgage-backed securities in one of the hottest real estate markets we've seen in history. So um, they get that. I mean, they're not, they're not dumb, but uh, I don't think they have an option either. You know, like I said, I really think they're trapped. So... Um, um, I don't know if they're, you know, sure you can say they're lying, uh, I guess, but uh, I, I don't know if anything, anybody else would have done anything different. I mean, we, we could say that we would just raise rates and let the whole thing um, price accordingly with, uh, uh, with the reality of fundamentals, but uh, 
um, you know, that's also a, that's also a tough game, and so uh, it would it would it would be very difficult to see a lot of those, you know, especially growth companies. Uh, I think would have a, a tough time uh, if we do that. I mean, just think about you know the ma you know, majority of companies that they're not making any money today. Just take Uber, you know, Lyft or um, Netflix. Uh, you know, would would they have existed in the 1970s? with 15%, 14%, 13% interest rates. Uh, that, by the way, that's government borrowing. Imagine corporate borrowing. It's probably even even higher rates yeah. than, than that. And so, um, no, probably not. I mean, you know, welcome to the real world. That's where, you know, if you're not profitable, you're out of business. You know, that's, that's what happens in any normal business cycle. But uh, that's not happening right now. Yeah. Just think about... What happened with Robinhood? I mean, uh, recently there were in a margin call. You know, this was exactly what happened with Lehman Brothers. Um, you know, Lehman Brothers couldn't afford it and uh, and had to go bankrupt. Um, this time around, you know, it's okay. You now the Federal Reserve got your back. And how many businesses had that? And so, um, I just think that it's uh, you know. Uh, Yes, it's uh, it's you know I, I I'm just a big fan of not intervening at all, allowing yeah. allowing the business cycle to run its course. Uh, but your question was if they're lying. Yes, they're lying. I think they're lying, and uh, but I also don't think they have an option. But this is just to like this is this this is basically what we call like the zombification of the market because it's in reality a lot of things that should be dying or like you said because you want in an economy you want a proper cycle you want businesses to collapse and so people could come back in and restart or reinnovate or you want that cycle through to go uh, to start to fail start and fail but the constant intervention the bailout it's it's provide it's it's basically removing the ability to produce productive businesses that are efficient and that think their process out because they now have a dependency, kind of like politicians having the Fed at their back, where every time a politician does something that is non-productive or does not produce anything good for the market, well, the Fed will intervene to be the insurance policy basically for political ignorance in the economy. So, you know, that's definitely, and as a millennial, as young people, I definitely see that as a risk factor for us because if that trend continues, how much of a down pressure force will that put on the social economy on the, the millennials be able to build their wealth or being able to start a business? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the investment behavior of all of us is always, um, you know, related to what you remember as part of your history. And uh, for millennials, I would say the global financial crisis was, uh, a very important event. Uh, you know, some millennials remember very well the 9/11 period. Some others don't. You know, they're maybe too young. Yeah, that, that would be us. You know, we're we're the last years of the millennials. Yeah, but but I would say the, um, I would say the global financial crisis had a major impact. Where, if you look at the under 30s or you know, I would say even 35, so the millennials or so. Uh, in terms of ownership of, of real estate, you know, still very low uh, relative to history. Uh, and so they're still scared of what happened back in 2008. And so, um, you know, this is uh, the same case goes to the prior generation, looking back at the, at the house, at the, the tech bubble, uh, certainly that had an impact on how they invest. And so mm -hmm. it's tough to build confidence to uh, forget those moments. And I think just now, millennials are starting to put aside the, the risk that they saw, that they saw the risks that they saw back in a way uh, with owning housing and seeing the collapse of prices. Um, so it, it takes time to develop that, but certainly now we're getting to a point where, uh, like you said, initially uh, in this interview was, uh, everyone is really used to uh, a stream of returns that is just not viable. <laughs> it's not, not sustainable. It, it, there's no way you could do that. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I say, look, uh, no, we're buying this property because we think it's going to go up. You know, there's a chance that this could go up uh, 30, 40%. And, uh, 
and then someone comes up to me and say, well, those are boomers returns. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me how, um, the world has uh, changed in that direction. And, uh, uh, we're going to get a lesson here soon. I just don't know when, but, uh, it, from a positioning standpoint, it all comes down to the commodities to equity ratio idea where you don't know which one is going to lead higher, but that ratio has been in a 50 year low or so. And it could be a collapse of equity markets that drives the ratio higher or just commodity markets entering a super cycle that outperforms the overall equities. And so I think that that's the best positioning for the next five to 10 years. So I've been looking for different ways to really allocate capital towards those different ideas. Awesome. No, I think we, uh, there, there's, there will be a lesson soon. I think we can agree on that. Again, it's impossible to predict when, but you know, over the macro and what's developing at that level, it's very hard to, to not be somewhat cautious mm. and at least protect your portfolio. Um, I want to ask you one last question, and this is related to more on the tennis side. I know Nick's not really big of a sports guy, but when you were growing <laughs> up, who was, who was the one tennis guy that you were watching and, and, and why? I grew up, I really started playing tennis because of Guga, a tennis player from Brazil who was, yeah. became number one, as you know, yeah. uh, in, the, in the world and won the French Open three times. And uh, now I remember watching him and I became kind of uh, fascinated by the sport. Uh, I started playing it really old age. I was about 14, I would say, which That's is very late. old. That's late, um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but I was really, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, I would I would like to call myself I was maybe very driven at the time. And I was I practiced uh, you know seven eight hours a day. I would go to school and then immediately go to uh, the country club. Uh, which country clubs are different in the U.S. They're seen as more for rich people here in the U.S. In Brazil, not so much. And uh, yeah, I used to stay there until 10 11 p.m. playing tennis. Uh, every single day uh, on weekends as well. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, I owe everything for tennis really. I mean, it's, mm. it cre I create a lot of relationships through it. And I, uh, I, I hope uh, my kids will play tennis too. <laughs> uh, so, so that discipline definitely carried over mm -hmm. into everything that you're doing today. There's definitely, it's, it's almost the parallels are there, right? Uh, I like to think so. I mean, certainly, uh, um, I mean, anything in life is, is just uh, putting the work and uh, you know, hard work and consistency, you know, doing it every day, regardless if it was learning English, which I didn't know a word a decade ago, or writing, uh, or uh, you know, doing well in college, um, um, or playing tennis, um, doing, uh, you know, being an investor, learning how to look at the macro environment, uh, learning history. And I would have thought that I would be writing letters and uh, being in love with history. You know, I never mm -hmm. thought that that would be the case today. But uh, being curious and never being bored. You know, there's you know, only boring people get bored. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's always something to learn and mm -hmm. something somebody else knows more than you and you want to learn from them. Um, so, yeah, I just apply the same... Uh, sort of the same uh, idea that I did with tennis and other other things in life and uh, see where it takes me. <laughs> Definitely, man. Well, look, Tavi, I think we're going to want to have you back here at some point because the market will have some kind of a lesson or maybe there's a surprise that uh, most of us might not be expecting. But listen, thanks so much for doing this. We know how important your yeah. time is. And, um, you know, where, where, where can the listeners uh, find you specifically? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, they can find me on uh, Twitter uh, at Tavi Costa or Instagram uh, at Tavi Costa Macro. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm also here. And uh, at uh, cresket.net is our website. We put out a lot of letters. Um, and we do a weekly interviews with, uh, or I should say weekly presentations about the macro environment, uh, a little bit about our views. And uh, we disclose a company or a district um, or updates of companies were involved uh, in the mining space every week on Fridays. Um, and uh, you know, suggest to if you, if you want to learn more about this industry, which is really, really interesting, mm -hmm. I would say just type Tavi Costa or Cresket on, on YouTube. I'm sure you're going to find us. Yeah. 
Definitely. Well, look, I, we love the, my personal favorite is mm -hmm. the Instagram page because it just mm -hmm. gets, it's like a quick executive yeah. summary of like the idea that you have. So keep, keep those coming. Yeah, really honestly. Well, thank you very much. I, yeah, I, I put it in Portuguese too. So yeah, I see that. I see that. I see that. I'll have to brush up on that. My Spanish is not as, as great as that. So we got a lot of work to do, but that's awesome. Tavi, thanks so much for yeah, doing this. Thank man. you a lot. Look forward oh, to having thanks. you My back pleasure. Soon. Yeah. Have a great one. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys, and ciao, Tavi. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>